We have a gift of grace here at this church in which we've been able to, for a while now, pray and have a team of people who pray for everybody who attends this church every single day. God has given us grace to be able to come to Him as we just did all together. And while there's one voice, maybe mine, this morning that spoke out loud, many of you, most of you maybe were praying inwardly and quietly, silently, maybe even praying, Lord, please help my child to be quiet while he's praying. You're praying. We are grateful that God allows us to pray, that He hears us, He cares for us. He wants us to come to Him with everything in prayer. And here at Calvary, God has moved us to have a team of people who pray for everybody in the church every single day. So every day, I'm praying for five of you. And somebody else on our prayer team is praying for five others. We have this fancy, spiffy notebook that keeps us in track of who we're praying for every day. It's a wonderful way in which we can meaningfully pray and lift up you and your family. Whether you give us requests or not, we pray for you. We have a passage of Scripture. We pray for you. So this morning, we're going to have, as we have done here a couple of times, we're going to have a minute or so of silence to quiet our minds, to prepare us to hear from God's Word. And instead of thinking, as I hope you are, what request does our family have that we want to share with this prayer team? You can do that by email or putting a piece of paper at the Welcome Center. We'll keep that private. We'll pray meaningfully daily for you. But this morning, as we take a moment of silence to quiet our minds and hearts, would you look around? Would you pick out someone, just one person in the audience, and silently pray for them? Pray that God would speak to them from his word, that they would be receptive to the Holy Spirit working through the word of God this morning. You obviously aren't going to tell them who they are, you get to pray for them. And what a privilege to be able to intercede on behalf of someone else. So let's take just a minute or so and be able to quietly prepare ourselves to receive the Word of God. If you would, take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Firm believer that we don't take enough time in our lives for quiet contemplation and prayer. And it does our souls good. Matthew chapter 16 this morning, we'll begin in verse 24. 
If you're keeping track of how long the sermon's going to be this morning, start your clock now, okay? <laughs> the other stuff was just the commercials in the beginning, right? I hope you're going to make plans to stay afterward for the baptisms. They're one of my favorite things we get to do. Matthew chapter 16, and beginning of verse 24. Would you stand in the honor of reading God's word? We'll read through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You may be seated. If you've ever played the board game Monopoly, you know then that there is one cardinal rule you ought never to break. The rule has nothing to do with properties that you should purchase first, or if you should choose the car or the dog characters, those are the only two options. No, the rule is that you never sell or trade a property that will give someone else a monopoly. Never. If you sell and think you're making some really good money, they're offering you a lot of money on the deal, you need to get out of debt for some reason, you will pay all of that money back and more when you land on a property with hotels on it. Just, just guaranteed, right? That's how the game gets over. You sucker one of your children into giving you a boardwalk when you have Park Place, and they think that they're getting a steal by getting their favorite color, maybe, okay? You can be sure you're going to lose soon if you give someone else a monopoly. If you're going to try and get some quick cash to win, it will be to usher in your demise. And while it's only a board game of no lasting consequence, usually we can do the same in our spiritual life, can't we? We can often make a deal or want something so bad that temporarily feels good and right and can help us, but only gives up time and ability, ways in which matter more for eternity. The, the temporary gain is often sought after or chosen instead of long-term rewards, patience, and faithfulness. As we look at this passage, we see a passage that is about we are not in control of our lives, and following Jesus requires our life. Jesus is the one, as he says here to his disciples, he sets the standard of what it costs to follow him, how it's worth it all to follow Jesus, and that there is a time when all things will be made known and judged. Jesus is the one who sets the standard. Jesus is the one who's in control of life and death, of setting the standards for discipleship and what it means to follow him. Jesus is the Lord of his followers. 
Jesus now turns from talking to just Peter and the section that preceded this. Remember, he's rebuked Peter to get behind him, Satan, because Peter was not able to understand that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem, had to suffer and die. And so he speaks here of what it costs to follow Jesus. What is the cost of discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in a book on this section? We'll look at two points. One is that following Jesus will cost you your life. You say, well, that's simple enough. We'll look at a few things from this text of this point. Following Jesus will cost you your life. Jesus, as he turns and tells his disciples, he says to them in the beginning there, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, that might be what your translation reads, using the word there, would. The word there is a Greek word that actually means a wishing or desire. You want to. There's something in you that says, if anyone wishes to come after me, there's something that's appealing, that draws you to Jesus. You can imagine, just as we're reading through Matthew, there's a lot here that is appealing and would draw me to want to follow Jesus. He has a lot of followers. He has thousands of people who are coming, willing to go without food sometimes for days on end that they might follow Jesus. They might not all believe in him. They don't all believe in him, but they're wanting to follow him. Jesus here is going to make a real distinction between those who just want to follow him and those who want to give their lives to him. And those are not the same thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, speaks in the beginning of it on cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace being that which we make a decision to trust in Jesus, and then we continue to do everything else we did before. Where we can have Jesus, and it doesn't cost very much. It's really cheap. Uh, One author one time wrote, "I, I I want the gospel. I want eternal life, but I just want $2 worth of the gospel. I don't want it to cost everything that I have. I just want a little bit, enough to secure me a relationship for eternity, but I don't want it to cost too much. Bonhoeffer makes the distinction between cheap and costly grace. Costly grace that costs Jesus his life. Costly grace that costs us everything to follow him. The word is wish or desire. Those who are wishing and wanting, he'll use this word later in the text, but those who want to follow me must know that there's a cost to following me. If anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's look at those three phrases right there. Deny themselves. To be able to act in a holy, selfless manner, to Follow the lordship of Jesus, not yourself. Jesus just rebuked Peter earlier, and yet it's Peter that when we think of this denying Jesus, instead of denying yourself, who Jesus later will say three times, Peter will deny him. Instead of denying himself, and instead of thinking of his own comforts or not being arrested and abused by those who were arresting and abusing and mocking and persecuting Jesus. Peter wanted to distance himself from Christ at that time. It would have cost too much. It would have cost him his his reputation or it would have cost him his body and his safety. 
Jesus deny, Peter denies Jesus. Jesus even foretold that to Peter, and Peter denied that it would even happen. But for those who want to follow Jesus, you want to follow him. The first thing we do is countercultural. Instead of affirming ourselves, instead of it being all about ourselves and our own self-esteem, is denying ourselves in a selfless manner, following after Jesus, making Jesus the focus of our following, not ourselves and our own comfort, the focus of our following. I'll follow him as long as it's comfortable, or I'll follow him in the ways that he commands. Those are two separate ways. The second phrase, take up their cross. This is ironic in that Jesus, the one that they're following, wishing to follow, actually will take up his cross. He's just told Peter he's going to take up a cross. He's going to be put to death. He'll be raised from the dead, but the scribes and the chief priests, the elders are going to kill him. And then he'll be raised from the dead. He will take up his cross. He commands all of his followers who desire to come after him to possibly be willing to suffer the same fate. It's taking up the very real possibility of martyrdom. One author said, if you're going to follow a dying man, it's likely you might suffer the same. This is not merely a self-denial. That's the phrase above. No, this is stating that you will need to die to self. Could literally mean that you are going to be put to death, hung on a cross. Take up your cross and follow me. These words of Jesus are about actual death. Too often, Christians can use the language of self-denial or even cross-bearing to have blunted the force of Jesus' words. They're about literal death, following the condemned man on his way to execution. Discipleship is a life of at least potential martyrdom. Again, Bonhoeffer, in writing his book on discipleship, says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to yourself, deny yourself, and take up your cross. So why do we say the phrase, it's my cross to bear? Or in what context do we use that phrase? Some might take it to mean a burden of misfortune, guilt, other suffering, a difficult responsibility or burden that someone must handle on their own. It's their cross to bear, that they were born lame, that he was born into that family, or that he has this difficulty. His wife left him. It's his cross to bear. We really strip the phrase of its powerful call to commitment if we make it solely again about us and our difficulty or burdens instead of our willingness to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. Sometimes I think we can be joking, right? Sort of like the jokes, like first world problem jokes. We could be saying how difficult it is to have multiple containers of ice cream in our freezer. When someone has to eat it, it's my cross to bear. I don't think the issue is whether or not you use that phrase, but your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. When he says to take up your cross, whoever wishes to follow me, take up your cross. It could mean that this will be what ends your life is following me. Are you willing to do so? Disciples of Jesus are willing to deny themselves and willing, if necessary, to go to death for their, their Savior, for Jesus himself. Again, 
Let me quote Bonhoeffer for the last time. He says, and if we answer the call to discipleship, the call that Jesus gives here, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be the road of boundless mercy, because discipleship means joy. While Jesus is calling someone to deny themselves, take up their cross, the possibility of martyrdom or self-denial doesn't in any way usually sound fun, joyful. And yet Bonhoeffer says, because of what we know, what we are assured of is the character and goodness of God. What we don't know is what's going to happen to us. Not a single one of us knows what's going to happen the second we walk out of this room, or if we can walk out of this room. It was several years ago now, but somebody had a medical emergency while in the midst of preaching. That's an awkward one to try and get around. Paramedics are coming in and taking him out, and he was fine, but you never even know. What we do know and what Bonhoeffer is pointing us to is we know the character of God. We know the journey we take will be full of boundless mercy. It will be joyful in Christ because we know his character, what he's already done and what he promises to do for us. So disciples, if you want to follow Jesus, and you should, as he'll tell us here in a minute, the reasons why we should, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and the third phrase, follow Jesus. Follow me. You must actually do it. You must actually put two feet, one in front of the other, and move, actually going to follow Jesus. Instead of just talking about it, desiring to do it, we actually follow him. We actually go through with it and fall on our knees and repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. We actually daily call on Him as our Lord and Savior and desire to do His will. We actually follow Him. This verse about taking up your cross moves us into a more discussion on our life or our soul and how Jesus says one can save his own soul. Earlier He said that following Jesus will cost you your life. The rest of the section we're going to look at following Jesus means saving your soul. It sounds like two different phrases that mean the exact opposite. And yet Jesus is saying there's a difference between making a temporary decision and something that lasts for eternity. There's a song, and often, didn't put the lyrics down and should have, but often think of it when regards to the distinction between our physical temporary life and the eternal life offered in Jesus. It is a song called, It Is Not Death to Die. It is not death to die, to leave behind what's here and to cling only to what is eternal. It is not death to hear the door close on this life and the door to eternal life at the same time be opened. It is only in eternity we begin to live the life we were created to live. That's the life that we were designed to live with Christ 
in perfection, in His presence. And that is a life that only comes about by, as Jesus will say here, losing your life that you might find it. Losing your life that you might save it. Verse 25 and 26, we get a little bit of a word play here from Matthew as he takes this word, which is translated in your version if it's like mine, and verse 25 differently than it is in verse 26. In verse 25, you see him talking, Jesus mentioning this word life. He says whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will, for my sake, excuse me, loses his life for my sake will find it. But in verse 26, it translates the same word, suxe, into soul. So all of a sudden, we have this wordplay going on of Jesus giving us exactly this distinction between physical life and eternal life in Him. Suxe is the word, a Greek word, from which we get words like psychology, psychotic, we get the psych beginning of those words from. The word has a broad range of meaning. But the word itself means soul, life, center of life, emotion, the very being of who you are, your soul, your eternal soul. To get the word play, we'll use soul and life interchangeably, knowing that one might be referring to your physical life and the other your spiritual soul. The word play is that while Jesus might be referring to saving your physical life, it also means you saving your spiritual soul. So let's give it a go. Here, verse 25. He who wishes to save his life will lose it. But for the one who loses his life, he will save it. Is that how it says? You would expect it to say that because it seems as though he's doing the opposite. Right? And in here, he begins to speak in ways that seem kind of opposite. For the one who wants, it's the same word there that we saw earlier, would save his life, wishes, desires. I would guess that probably 100% of us in this room wish, desire, would like to save our lives today. We're not wanting to die. That's a good thing. He says here, for those who wish to save his life will lose it. But for the one who loses his life will, he doesn't say save it, but instead he changes it. The one who loses his life will find it. For the person who assumes that they're the master of their own destiny and is doing everything they can according to their own standard or belief, they will be the one who desiring to save their life Desiring by all these means of, if I can just eat healthy, if I can just think right thoughts and be a good neighbor and love those around me, if I can do good and my good outweighs my bad, I've got a fighting chance that I'm going to make it out of purgatory some point to be able to enter the celestial city. All of a sudden, we get books and metaphors mixed up with Scripture and God's truth, right? We begin to think that we're nothing but reap a cheap on a little boat floating towards the waves that is Aslan's land. But instead, we begin to see what the Scripture says, that those who are on their own, desiring to save their life, will lose it. So instead of throwing our hands up in the air, what do we do? We lose our lives for His sake, and we will find it. For His sake, we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. And in so doing, yeah, it might lead to martyrdom, but it will lead to eternal life. 
It might lead to physical temporary suffering, but that temporary suffering might lead to eternal glory in which you find the life you were meant to live for all of eternity. There are no other saviors. There will be no other saviors but Jesus. Jesus has total claim on the ability to save someone's soul. That's what he's saying here. The person who tries to be his own savior will lose his life. So the question is, in reading this, do you believe Jesus? He's making a distinction here that says, if you're trying to do it on your own, you're going to fail and you will lose your life. He'll actually say later in the next verse, you'll lose your soul. So in case you were wondering, temporary life, eternal life, both. If on your own, you desire to save yourself, it's not going to work. And so the question is, for us as we read, do we believe him? If we do, that changes the way we live. And if we don't, may God have mercy. And may God continue to work in us to bring about faith, to trust in Jesus. Because later in the scriptures, Jesus says, he is And John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way but by me. No one can come to the Father but through Jesus. No one can have eternal life except through Jesus. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Augustine echoes this when he says, Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? We human beings have, since the Garden of Eden, desired to be the ones who make the laws, set the controls on life. But Jesus makes it really clear that life and death and the destiny of your soul is according to his economy and not ours. While I can set the rules in my home, somewhat, I can't guarantee that they're followed, and hopefully they're set according to God's word and wisdom, A coach can set the policies and standards for his team. God is the only one who wields control over the universe and everyone in it, over the world and everything in it. That's verse 25. Verse 26, Jesus puts it not in terms of saving and losing and finding, but in financial terms of profit and loss. This might speak to some of you that the other verse didn't. This might speak to those who think in these types of terms. Jesus states that if someone has the ability to gain the whole world, to be owner and master over everything, that would profit them nothing in exchange for their soul. Maybe you've heard it in a book or a movie, possibly, the idea that someone, quote, sold their soul to the devil. Well, this is it. Someone who did not heed this verse and said, you know, I'd rather have everything this world has to offer than to follow Jesus. While there might not be a written contract with the devil signing it, there is a heart that's postured towards me, myself, and I. What I think will bring about happiness, success, riches, and pleasure beyond comparison. I will live for my will, my way today and always. That's a heart that's set completely against this offer that is being granted to anyone. Someone says, I would rather follow Jesus than to have houses or lands. I'd rather follow Jesus, live one day in your kingdom than thousands elsewhere. 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. For those that say that, is it true? Occasionally, I'm rebuked by songs that we sing, and there's a line in the song that speaks of our whole heart being given over to the Lord, and I don't always want to sing that line because I wonder, is it true? Is my whole heart genuinely saying, yes, I want you to be Lord of my life with my whole heart? Be thou my vision. Nothing else take its place with everything that we have. Is that true? Here what's being offered is everything the world affords. Some of us would have to stop and think about it for a minute, wouldn't we? What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Well, how much are we talking about? What kind of offer is there on the table? To recognize that the one making the offer is deceitful at his core. And yet what Jesus says is an offer that is far better than any deal that can be made in Monopoly and lasts longer for sure. Where he says, the following after me, you will gain your soul. You won't forfeit it. You will gain your soul and you might lose the whole world, but for all of eternity, you have gained life with me. To follow me, we have to put our faith and trust in him. Not just in the circumstances are always going to go according to how I want them. Jesus puts it here in terms of profit and loss. It would be a foolish offer to take, to gain the whole world and to lose what is offered to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Maybe someone who desires the whole world is driven by a hunger for things or success, power, stability. Maybe they don't believe in Jesus, only have faith in what they can see in front of them right now. The idea of delayed gratification is not worth it. Jesus is not calling anyone else to do something that he himself is not willing to do, is he? Jesus here is not a foreman who refuses to get his hands dirty. But instead, Jesus himself puts his money where his mouth is, and he himself denies the offer of the whole world for your eternal soul. Earlier in Matthew, we saw in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan himself is tempting Jesus, and the third and final temptation is given in Matthew 4, verses 8 and 10. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus withstood temptation, denied the power, whatever was offered to him by Satan, the glory, the, the kingdoms of the world right now. And for, if we can put it in this way, to one who stands outside of time, God himself not being controlled by our understanding of days and hours and weeks and years, but one who is from eternity past to eternity future, who controls all things, to be able to say no to delayed gratification in Jesus, I can give it to you all right now. And he denies it. For your eternal soul, for my eternal soul, that we might be forgiven 
of our sins on the cross, that he might do the work of redemption he promised he would do for us so that he can say with accuracy, as we mentioned earlier, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one who comes to the Father except by me. He is the only way to genuine life. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? There might be someone in this room that that question is exactly what God has for you this morning. It is better to die for Jesus. It is better to die for Jesus than to gain the whole world. Do you believe that? This does not mean that one cannot have money. It does not mean that one cannot be successful in this life. It does not mean that one should not or cannot enjoy luxuries in this life. But it means what are you trusting in? Are you trusting, relying upon, looking for life and meaning in the world and all of its stuff to save you and satisfy you? Or are you saying as you follow Jesus, I trust in Jesus. I'm putting my life in his hands and I'm willing to give up everything and anything to follow him because he is far greater than anything else this world can afford. The missionary Jim Elliott has a famous quote. He says, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll repeat it. Somebody in here maybe needs to write that down. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus knew and expected that some of his own followers, his disciples at that moment in speaking to them, might be killed because of their loyalty to his cause. He recognized that there might even be some who would be killed earlier than others, but there, there would be some who actually would give their lives to him, that there would be some who trust in him and who die because of their following Jesus. And indeed, that was the case for many of the disciples. It might be the case for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we prayed for those who are persecuted around the world. That might be the case for many of them. And if we're lucky, it might be the case for some of us. To be able to say with our dying breaths, as so many who have gone before us, that we will not recant, we will not give in, that we trust in Christ. And what a joy and a pleasure it would be to give our lives for him. A clear choice is thus offered between self-preservation at all costs and the risky business of following Jesus. But the self that is preserved by such a safe option is not worth preserving since the real self is lost. Merely losing your life is not gain. It is life that is lost out of loyalty to Jesus which ensures that true life is gain. Look at the verses that follow, verses 27 and 28. This gives us the hope of eternity that God will come into his, Jesus will come into his glory, his kingdom will come, and that there will be a day of reckoning where everything that we have done is given into account. The Lord will repay each person according to what he has done. As we look at verse 27, 28, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels into the glory of his Father. This is not speaking of a second coming, 
but of Jesus when he goes to the Father to be received in his exaltation. At the ascension, when Jesus leaves earth in front of his disciples in Matthew 28 and is received in glory by his Father. Philippians chapter 2 records this as Paul writes to the church there. It speaks of Christ's descent all the way to death and yet his ascent as the glorious king to which every knee will bow and every tongue eventually will confess that he is Lord. The Lord will repay each person according to what he has done. There will be a day of reckoning for all of the deeds that we have done. Psalm 62 verse 11 says, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. You notice in the context of that verse in the psalm, it's in the context of his steadfast love and his power that he will render to a man according to his work. For the person who wants to follow Jesus, we deny ourselves, take up his cross, and we follow him actually with our lives, knowing it might cost us our life. And yet if we desire to save our lives on our own, there will be a reckoning of our deeds that are done. And on our own, will not measure up to the holy standard of God himself. This implies... When we speak of God having a reckoning, Jesus in his glory repaying each person according to what he's done, as you read that phrase, it implies that the Lord knows everything. He knows everything that you've done, everything that I've done, everything that we are doing, and everything that you will do. The Lord knows. To give a reckoning, he has to. It also implies that the Lord cares about these things and cares enough to have a time in which they will be judged and that they will be judged according to His standard because He is the one who will repay each person according to what He has done. All of those things are implied in the fact that this will happen. Jesus will be received into glory and there will come a time when all of our actions will be judged. Nothing is insignificant. No actions you take are no big deal. They will be accounted for. In a similar way in which you account for every dollar that you spend from your checking account, no matter how small it is. You even notice when a bank or somebody else that you're going to set up a payment plan with takes out one penny. You know, they take out a penny here and there to test your account to make sure it's you. You see that. I see that. I can see it on my phone almost instantly, and we reckon it, we account for it, and so will Jesus of our deeds. What are our deeds relying, speaking of us? The Son of Man will come in His future glory. The Son of Man will be ascended into heaven. The Son of Man will come again for His people. May the Lord find us faithful to be trusting in Him. Verse 28 says, and there's some confusion sometimes, and even I am quite confused with it, but verse 28, we'll do our best shot just before we close so that we can say we did justice to the whole passage. But verse 28 says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. On the face of it, it looks as though there's going to be disciples who live forever or live till Jesus returns. That's not the case. They all die. We know that. What it might mean is that some 
he's speaking of will last, will live until Jesus ascends into heaven. And we know that's true of 11 of them. One apostle, one disciple dies, takes his life, Judas. And so there's 11 who will remain and see the Lord, the Son of Man, coming in his kingdom as he ascends into heaven. It could also mean the very next passage in chapter 17 that we'll look at next week. When it speaks of the transfiguration of Jesus, as he is seen in all of his glory before three, that there will be some who will not taste death until six days from now, where chapter 17 begins, and they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, the Son of Man who is glorified, the Son of Man who is king over all and his kingdom coming. Nonetheless, what we do see and what we do know is that Jesus will come again. Jesus is glorified now. Jesus is over all, ruling over all, and Jesus will reckon every deed of man and take it into account. May we be following after him, denying ourselves, taking up his cross and willing to give our lives and actually getting up and following after Jesus. What is it that that looks like for you today? Have you made the decision to follow after Jesus? Have you desired that and not yet done it? Has God been working on you and you know it and you have not yet bowed your heart and will to his? This morning, there would be an awesome opportunity to be able to do that. And maybe for you, like me, there are areas of our life where we know for a fact the world has a very strong hold on us. And we might not be willing to say in every way that we would be willing to gain the whole world and forfeit. That we know for certain that there are areas of our life that we still hold on to, sins that we cling to, and we need to let them go and repent. May the Lord continue to give grace. May he continue to expose those areas of discipleship that we need to relinquish over to him as the one who is the Lord of the followers, the one who sets the agenda and the standards for us. And may he find us faithful. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are so thankful this morning that we can come to you in prayer. That you have worked to bring about your son Jesus to redeem us and make this relationship with you possible. Where we do not come fearing a God who is whimsical and we don't know how he will act, but a God who is faithful, a God who says how he will act and respond towards us when we come to him in faith. The scriptures speak of our sins, that everyone has sinned. Everyone has gone his own way. There is no one who on their own achieves a holy standard that is necessary for salvation. No, not one. All fall short of the glory of God. And yet, God, we also read the scriptures that we did this morning that we see Jesus who has come. Jesus who lived perfectly. Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who offers salvation by means of his body and his blood that was poured out for us on the cross. And the scriptures speak also of those who, if you will confess with your mouth, if you will cry out to Jesus in saving faith that he will Forgive us of our sins, and he will save us. We could trust in your word, Father, as we look to it this morning, and many in this room no doubt have called on you as their Lord and Savior. This morning we'll even celebrate that publicly 
as we see brothers and sisters publicly declare their allegiance to Jesus. And Father, we pray that this morning that there might be someone here who this morning has come to see you face to face and for the very first time desires to follow Jesus. We pray that they would. We pray that this morning they would repent of their sins, recognize they cannot save themselves, and that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus alone to save them. And Father, may they, like us, desire to follow you, willing to give our lives for the greater good of living eternally with you, willing to give up a physical life to gain eternal souls. Father, would you grant us grace to trust in you daily, following this life of discipleship, not knowing what will come, but trusting the one who does for our good and for your glory. We're grateful to trust in you, and we ask your help in trusting you this morning and in the days that come. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.